continue. Take your copy of God's Word. We're going to continue worship in Romans 7 as we looked and are looking at the struggle. Westmount family, those of you that do not know yet, when we think of struggle, the earthly struggle ended for Jean last night. She has graduated. The struggle is over. In that sense, we echo, even as the family did last night, the mercy for God to do that. Jim was telling me last night, praise the Lord, we need not pray for Jean anymore. But he did say, pray for them. Pray for Jim and Jerry and family. So let's do that, Westmount. Pray for them in the days ahead. In one sense, I've heard it said, and I believe it's true, when these things are known and expected and coming, it's surprisingly harder when the day it comes. So let's be praying for them. Uh, And again, strength for the Lord in light of this. But let's continue that motif as we do think of Gene over the past few months and and us now, the ones that remain and, and our struggle in Romans 7. Romans 7. We've been in this passage, Romans 7, 13, right through to 25. And we commented to open last week, we returned to this well-known and much-referenced portion of the letter. It's where we are. It's a very well-known passage. I certainly feel the weight of that, preaching it to you. And again, this week, let us just set our hearts in the passage, and we're going to begin by reading it. Look with me at verse 13. We'll read the whole thing to start, starting in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. Through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in light of this text, the struggle that it outlines, and we, each one of us that are regenerate before you, recognize that struggle. Lord, we pray you'd continue to open our eyes to this text and all the rich meaning that it has for us in our sanctification. And Lord, let it go deep and let us live it out. God, by your enablement, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. That is, look at those verses again, 
and survey. That is the believer's struggle outlined there. Indwelling sin, indwelling spirit. Yes, an indwelling spirit in the Christian's inner being that is soul-generated, regenerated. But still indwelling sin in that flesh that remains in the Christian's outer members, the clinging flesh. This is the reality of the believer here and now as they grow in Christ. This is the already of their soul redeemed, renewed, and now desiring God's law alongside the not yet of your flesh, unredeemed and still bent on sin. This is the reality for the saint as they walk each day. This is a reality. And to remind ourselves that this is indeed the believer's struggle, let us touch just for a moment as we begin on what we've already covered in this passage. So number one, remember last week our first point, first and foremost, was the struggle's context. The struggle's context. Simply, this is the questions we are asking, where are we in this letter? Where are we in this chapter? Recall with me chapters 1 to 5, they dealt with the matter of what? Salvation, matters of justification, from humanity's need in Adam to humanity's hope in Christ, which came to a head, of course, in chapter 5. Then chapter 6, Paul turned to matters flowing from and out of salvation, which, of course, involves sanctification. That is, as we've been learning, the process of our being set apart. This is the doctrine of holiness, the process of growing in Christ's likeness. Thus, in the wake of our great salvation, in the wake of it, the theology of it, right? Chapters 1 to 5, in the wake of that theology in chapters 1 to 5, Paul turns and now looks at how the implications of this great salvation are worked out. So recall with me chapter 6, and the focus now, turning on that hinge in 6.1, continuing, right, 6.1, the daily presentation of ourselves. This is what Paul turns to, to focus on the daily presentation of our bodies, of our lives. And we do not lose sight. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. Remember this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is progress. This is life to make you obey its passions. Then this, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, this is the daily ongoing work of sanctification of presentation. Same idea, look at verse 20, same thing. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, and look at this, that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul says, look at that. This is what it means now. These are the implications now of being a slave to God. You ongoing bear fruit. You bear fruit for God, which, look at it, leads to sanctification. Fruit that is, and this is logical for us, day-to-day nourishment, day-to-day production. And that's the context that leads right into chapter 7, where Paul continues 
with the doctrine of sanctification. We have in this doctrine a new relationship to God and his law, and we've talked about that at length, a new relationship. The Old Testament believer, or here we'd say the first century believer, it was the Mosaic law. That was the old administration stamp of the law of God for a time and place. But that is chapter 7 taught to the believer, to the faithful one. This is Paul's point. They're dead to that now. They're dead to that now. But listen, and we've taught this too, not dead to law and standard, period. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, here's Paul's point. My brothers, you also have died to the law. That is true. But through the body of Christ, right? Then more so that, here here it is, pulling it together, you may belong to another, to him. Remember the slave transfer? Who has been raised from the dead in order that purpose that we may what? Bear fruit for God. There it is. So this is no longer relationship to external custom and code, but this is a relationship in and through Jesus Christ. Yes, we're released from the lesser to serve the greater. Look at verse 6. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And so it did for those believers of old, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, that is how we walk in relationship to God now, in the new way of the Spirit. That Spirit does not discard God's law completely, but it knows this, verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And that is indeed true, and our renewed soul knows that, the inner being knows that, and agrees that God's law is good. So let's summarize the context here. Uh, For a moment, this is not a matter of salvation, remember, but sanctification. This is not a matter of being dead to the law, period, but alive to the law in Christ. And recall, this is no longer a boast about law fulfillment. Do you remember that with Paul? He's no longer boasting about fulfilling the law. No, in Christ, this is now the struggle of law living in the flesh. So that's the context. That's all good. But there's something, and we looked at this last week too, that remains alongside our inner being and soul. And thus we look not just at the struggle's context, but also the struggle's conditions. Our second point last week, which spelled out clearly in verse 14, remember that the law is spiritual, but Paul is of the flesh. Very simple. The law now inward in Christ is good, but Paul, like the believer, is still walking in a vessel of unredeemed humanness. The flesh, the material part, The merely human part, these are our faculties. And to be clear, by the way, this is everything from our physiological self, so the actual bones and tissues, if you want to say it that way, to our emotional self, to our emotions, to our mental self. This is all of our composition, right, that would be present and walking today. The flesh is all of that. And we need to remind constantly here, Remember, remember, this is what we learned. Christian, like Paul, you have undergone a humanity transfer from Adam to Christ. Yes, we are now members of the humanity of life. And recall, and this was a helpful way, I think, to look at it. Recall, though, you may take Paul out of Adam, right? But you can't take Adam out of Paul. Another way to say there's still his flesh. You can take him out of the realm of the flesh or his soul in that domain of death. 
There's a remnant of flesh that clings. And Christian, we are caught between the already and the not yet. This is it. Christian, we're renewed spiritually, inwardly, soulfully, but we're still fleshly, we're still of the body. And yes, those are ripe conditions, are they not, for struggle, the spirit and the flesh. So one other important reminder under this point, remember we looked at it last time, on conditions. Remember, Christian, we have one new nature, not two, and one new nature that remains accountable to God. One new nature that remains accountable to God. We are saved from eternal penalty, but not present day-to-day consequences. And so the struggles, conditions. But last time, and we ended here, we looked at one more. Looked at the context, conditions, and the struggles, conscience. The struggles, conscience. Take a look back at verse 15. It really captures this. Verse 15 says this, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Paul says, verse 15, this is a cry we relate to, I don't understand my own actions. I don't understand them. That's the cry of every believer, the true believer in the wake of who is contemplating their own sin. The true believer with the inner being regenerated says, I don't understand what I'm doing. That's the struggle's conscience. This is the cry of the spirit in the wake of flesh. Recall again, Paul expresses this twice in these verses, verses 15 and 19. See it. In the struggle with sin, this is agreement with law. Look at verse 16. He agrees. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. That's the believer's conscience at work. Now, with a right relationship to the law, the law is right. I did wrong. Plain and simple. The conscience that doesn't blame circumstances or look in the past or look around at others. No. We ended with a closer look at this. You think of the conscience. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. In other words, the redeemed person, the redeemed believer struggling in flesh says, The problem is me. The problem lies in my flesh. Inside, deep inside, I desire to do what is right. But in my outer members, in my faculties, there's indwelling sin at work. And it impairs my ability to do what is good. More, it is at war with my inner being. My inner being, that, verse 18, desires good. That's a context for war, is it not? Fellow, desire, the will, the inner drive now to do what is right is at war with a very strong, fierce flesh. Remember, though, it is only the new man, the new creation, that can finally seek God's law rightly. Remember, in the Old Testament, it really comes through in Paul's testimonies, this is not a dutiful boast. This is not a must-do brag, so to speak. This is for the first time with a regenerated soul saying, that is what I want. But my, oh my, is it hard to accomplish. And I certainly don't boast about it. And only with inner conversion can one like Paul here recognize the struggle, the struggle's conscience. is the only one that takes place in a believing conscience. Again, we said it, no unbeliever struggles like this. Which brings us to the final verses here in chapter 7. 
And our next point as we continue, and it's this, the struggle's confession. Struggle's confession. Let's look at verse 21, and let's just continue. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul says, look at it with me. So I find it to be a law. Just stop there for a moment. I find it to be a law. This is just brilliant writing. Paul writes skillfully here, utilizing fully the motif and the context of law. And he recognizes law has been front and center. And it's as if to say, this is what Paul writing, while we're on the topic of law, let's use that idea a bit more. You want to talk about law then? Listen, Paul says, I find it to be a law, or you could say this way, I find it to be a principle. You have the NASB or LSB. I find it to be a law, I find it to be a principle, using that language, that is this. This is the principle, the law principle. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So I was preparing this week, I thought, man, I I could do a whole sermon just on that law principle, right? Is that not true? Wow. This is the law principle. When I want to do right... When the desire is there and activated, oh my, evil lies close at hand. Like its own law principle, like its own axiom, seek righteousness and you better believe what? Evil sits up straight, right? Beloved, this is indeed, says Paul, like its own law, a law of the flesh alongside the spirit. Desire good, seek righteousness and what? The flesh is aroused and pounces. It's almost as if in this law principle, the desire for righteousness is what activates the flesh. Is that not true? Sin seizes the opportunity, sees the knife on the table and pounces. When the forbidden is defined, our flesh draws close. Now our experience, listen, our experience confirms that, but the word first and foremost dictates that truth, does it not? But Westmount, it behooves us not to just take a moment right now and recognize the broader principle here, how applicable this is. Where righteousness is sought, evil lies close at hand. We need to just stop for a moment and consider this. It is true in your life, believer, is it not? It's true in your life. It's true in your daily walk, is it not? You seek righteousness in what? Ought pups evil, right? Just pops up. But it's also true in the company of believers, is it not? In the local church, is it not true? When we pursue good, Westmount, when we hold to righteousness, what happens? Evil pops up. This principle is true individually and it's true corporately and it behooves us not to move too quickly and not recognize the greater context even for us in this local church right now. When you seek righteousness, beloved Westmount Saints, evil pops up. May we never forget that. The principle in all arenas that says where righteousness is sought, evil lies close. Lurking in the bushes, waiting to pounce, and listen, evil doesn't need to pounce where evil abounds, does it? Evil targets right here. Now Paul continues to employ the matter of law in teaching here. Look at verse 22. 
He just continues, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Bible readers, look with me. Don't miss the four that opens verse 22. What do we know? We know this. This should be standard fare at Westmount now. When you see that connecting word, that's one of those little connecting words that tell us what's about to be unpacked here and said connects to verse 21. It's the law principle then from verse 21. Here it is. It's going to be expounded for us more. Paul has more to say about the law principle. And it is this. Look at verse 22. Here it is. A delight in God's law on one hand, the seeking the good, which is set against the contrast, verse 23, a captivity to the law of sin, the presence of evil. This is what undergirds the law principle in verse 21. Notice here Paul is making a dual confession. He's making a positive confession and a negative confession. This is the struggle's confession. I delight in God's law, yet I'm captive to sin's law. I delight in God's law. Law is no longer my duty or my boast, but here it is, it's my delight. The believer has a new relationship to God's law, not through Moses, but through Jesus. This is confirmed further by the law language Paul uses for the law of God here. Look at it in verse 22. Not just the law of God, verse 22. Look at verse 23. Also the law of my mind, Paul says. This is not just desiring law rightly from a new heart, but see it here with me. This is thinking law rightly with a new mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ. See how you use these things synonymously in context here. That is the law of the regenerate's heart and mind, delight in God's law. Yes, that is the confession, listen, of a true born-again believer indwelt by the Spirit. Yet it resides alongside this other confession. Look at verse 23. As Paul looks at his members, and he sees another law, if you will, to use this language, Paul is Again, doing this wonderfully here, this motif of law. He sees another law at work, another law principle at work, if you will. And what is this other law in his members? It's waging war against the law of God. Look closely. Paul calls it the law of sin in verse 23. Now, we need to make a few comments here to make sure that we're on track and we don't get confused. Number one, the law of sin is different to sin itself. And I think you see that. The law of sin is different to sin itself. Paul certainly is not contradicting himself here. In chapter 6, we learn that the believer is dead to what? Sin. And Christian, we are, listen, dying with, dying in Christ. Romans 6, 7 means we died to sin. And remember, that means we died to its penalty and power, but listen, not its presence. Not its presence. The law of sin here, this is where word construction matters, is what takes us captive. The law of sin. And we're talking about law principles here. And there's a principle, and we just looked at it in verse 21, and that's what takes us captive, if you will. This is not sin captivity. Jesus took care of that, praise God. This is the law of sin captivity, which is the law principle, again, Paul has referenced in verse 21. And it was where the inner being seeks to do right, evil sin lies close at hand. There it is. And we learn that there's nothing closer to our redeemed inner being than our members, our faculties, our flesh. And that is where, as we've also learned, where evil and sin reside. 
So the law of sin we find ourselves captive to is not the power of sin itself, but the principle of struggle between spirit and flesh that holds to us tightly. Yet that law of sin, as much as it has a grasp, listen, it too has no ultimate power. It's a law principle, and we all nod our heads to that, but it has no ultimate power over us. More on that later. But by way of another important comment on this verse, secondly, we'd say the law of sin, look at verse 23, Paul says it dwells where? And this is so helpful. Look at it. Where does it dwell? Look at it. In my members, he says. That's the locale. In my members. The sin principle is not in our inner being. Sin no longer has a vise on our soul. This law of sin dwells in the outer members, the flesh, the decaying, the dying part. The location here is not our renewed inner being because that is, what do we learn? Think about Titus in particular. That is regenerate. That's purify. And listen, this is precisely why it is a war. Is that not true? Because this principle is certain. You want to do what is right, but the sinful flesh wants evil. Your renewed inner being delights in the law of God, but your dying outer members are bent on the law of sin. Christian, it is war. It's war. And beloved, because it is a war, because it is hard, because it is a struggle, listen to me, is no excuse. I should hardly need to say that, right? Because it is hard doesn't mean you have an excuse. Far from it. Excusing sin is not a struggle, but it could be a sign if that's you. It's like the soldier that deserts the war. He only reveals his true military identity, doesn't he? When he says, this has become hard and I'm out. Turns out he's not a soldier after all. So to the one excusing sin because it's a struggle reveals his or her soul state. No, believer, no. You confess that law of sin dwelling in your outer members. You see it, you own it, you confess it. And as you do, listen, you don't excuse your sin. You don't sidestep your sin. And you don't deny your sin. And as you confess your sin, you don't laugh about your sin. Or you don't make light of it. Or please don't do this, make your sin respectable. No believer, no believer. You confess the law of sin dwelling in your outer members. Then what do you do? What the good Christian does in all things, repent. Repent and confess your delight in the law of God. As we prayed this morning already, Jerry took us through this. We rejoice that we can come to the throne of grace and be forgiven. What joy. You repent, confess your delight in the law of God, and listen, that law of God now dwells within you, believer. And that confession has a more certain future, which brings us to our final point and reality of this section, the struggle's consummation. So much here as we end this chapter. Let's try and look at it. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul has two cries in that verse. First one, wretched man that I am. You could say it another way if we get behind in the original. I am a miserable man. 
I am a distressed man. More, I am a helpless man. This is a logical cry, right? In the wake of sin. Not believer all the time, right? In the wake of your sin, this is a logical cry. And we've seen why. My inner and outer being are at war. And again, we need to be crystal clear on who cries this kind of cry. This is not, nor can it be, the cry of an unconverted person in any way. Listen to me, as many of you have commented on this passage, no unbeliever is crying this, right? No one's crying this. This is not the cry of one suffering or feeling miserable under the law. Such a one as many are today feels very secure under law, don't they? Very dutiful. And if you listen closely, they have a boast. Not this one, though. Not Paul here. Not the regenerated. Not this cry. This cry, and here's the language, is a spiritually sensitive cry. It is a cry that only one who so keenly feels the struggle between inner renewal and outer decay, only one like that can truly feel and emote this cry. This cry is only by those close to God. And even more, back to verse 18, those who truly desire, delight in the law of God in their inner being. But also, while they're delighting and desiring, feel the influence of the law of sin in their flesh. As such, with their flesh-wrapped, renewed inner being, they follow up that cry with this, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the cry of deliverance. That's the SOS, day-to-day of the redeemed. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, Lord, how I delight in it. Yet, oh, this law of the flesh, who will deliver me? This is the cry of one with the Spirit. And listen, a spirit that groans for deliverance. This cry sets the table for where Paul is going next in chapter 8. As mentioned, we'll have much more to say about this, as Paul does, about spirit and flesh in the next chapter. But by way of preview, and I pray it'll be a help for this text, look at 8, 22, and 23, just so you see and start to connect some dots preemptively. He says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But look, that's the, the broad, but then look at the specific. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who what? Have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. And why? Why are we groaning? As we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, listen, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, believer, I know this. You know that cry. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Redemption of our body. Same idea, by the way, elsewhere in the New Testament. Listen to another passage, 2 Corinthians 5. You can note this. Listen to the same language, same theology. For we know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then listen in verse 2. For in this tent, so this is the temporary dwelling, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So good. The Spirit is our guarantee. We're groaning, and there's no uncertainty there. Oh, I hope, as our next-door neighbors might say, or I hope that I'll be delivered from this body of death, they may say. No, we know we will be, because the Spirit testifies within us, and the Spirit is our guarantee, says the Word of God. We groan, we're burdened, we cry, because our being is at war. But we know the terminus, and it should uplift your soul. You know how it ends. Decay, but deliverance. And listen, when we think about being at war, and we think about that question, let's make sure we're all clear here. The question can, if we allow it, just to hang in the air. Who will deliver us from this body of death? If we're not careful day to day, we succumb to this kind of despair. Well, notice first, by the way, that chapter 7, I want you to look at this. It doesn't end. Chapter 7 doesn't end in verse 24, right? Do you see that? This is not some version of Frederick Nietzsche, right? That just says, well, that's it. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Oh, well, let's just live. It doesn't end in verse 24. In God's word, there's not only more, but there's an answer to that cry. And for that, we turn to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Jesus Christ. The same one that delivered your soul. This Jesus who delivered us from sin and death will deliver us from this flesh too. And you say, did he not come and already do that? And the answer is in one sense, yes, he did. Jeremy taught us this morning, yes. He came, he lived, he died and laid that life down in death and rose again. And that life and sacrifice not only freed us from the penalty of hell, but also imputed righteousness to us. Very active obedience. And at salvation, we became new. We received a new heart. Listen, a new law-inscribed heart. Amazing. Enabling us now to finally, for the first time, beloved, not sin. Inner being work is done. Christ came to secure that inner work. However, it doesn't end there, as Augustine helpfully taught us. Remember, we looked at this already. We've moved from an inability to not sin to an ability to not sin. There's one more step for the converted Christian, and it is glory. So you take that, and he had his famous four steps. One day, that day where we will be unable to sin. If I was feeling really fired up, I'd say, say it with me. But I mean, it's amazing to think, one day, beloved, you will be unable to sin. And I know for a fact, because I feel this all the time too, we don't meditate on that enough, do we? Fixate on this present sin And one day is coming when you will not be able to sin. You won't even want it, and you won't. You won't. It's glory. This is the struggle's consummation. Glory. Salvation's consummation. This is the terminus of our sanctification, and it's the pinnacle of it all. Philippians 1.6 mentioned it last week. This is God bringing to completion the good work at that day of Jesus Christ, which reminds us, The Christ is not done. 
It is finished. Means the penalty of our sins. Done, finished, nothing more to do. But he came once and he's coming again. He came already to accomplish and inaugurate our great salvation, the cross. And he's coming again. This is the not yet. Listen, to complete and to consummate the transaction. And beloved, on that day, the struggle will be over. Our bodies will be made whole. And that's your hope, Christian. But listen, we're not there yet. And that is precisely why this passage doesn't end there. It doesn't end there because before tomorrow, and we hope in tomorrow, there is today, is there not? And living day to day is in light of this, as Paul concludes at the end of verse 25. Look at it with me. So then, concluding statement, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There it is. That really sums up everything Paul's been teaching in verses 13 to 25. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That is the struggle plane. Do you see that in that verse? I myself, my indwelling spirit, serves the law of God with my mind. That is my desire. But my flesh and the indwelling sin that resides there serve a different law. A different law. Sin has no power, and I pray this is clear for all of us now. Sin has no power. Through the body of Christ, it's lost its grip, but it's still present. And that is, beloved... As much as we have hope for that day, that is the reality of this day. Sin has lost its power, praise God, but sin is still present. Remember, as you live each day as the Lord tarries, remember, the end is near. He is coming back. The struggle is real and it's fierce today, but listen, it's drawing to a close. As we see saints going before us, it's drawing to a close. Yes, listen, the struggle is on order. It's on order. The struggle's consummation is at hand. Wait and wrestle with the hope of Christ's return. And as you wait and wrestle and walk in the new way of the Spirit, let us close this text with some very necessary application and understanding. Now, I recognize some of you have been waiting two weeks. How do you apply this famous text? And we need to do that. And I pray this is helpful for you. We absolutely need to do this, especially as we begin to depart in a few minutes. What are the implications for the word of God and for this text? So let's close with that before we turn to Romans 8. I want to credit to William Barclay for helping with some of these insights. And again, I don't necessarily recommend him everything theologically, but the way he applies the text is really helpful. So let's do this together. The struggle in our sanctification reveals this, our inadequacy. That's what I want you to camp out on as we close here. The struggle reveals our inadequacies. Number one, human knowledge is inadequate. Human knowledge is inadequate. Listen to me, Christian, we see it is not enough to know, to just now know and have it written on your heart. It's not enough to just know what's right and wrong, is it? It's not enough. Do it. We're inadequate. It's not enough to know. Listen, ask any golfer if it's enough to know how you swing the club and how you position. Knowing is very different from execution, isn't it? 
It's the same in our spiritual life, is it not? Consider all your study and knowledge. And this is why I've told some of you, you can take all the study and knowledge you want. Without execution, it's meaningless. Without it impacting your life. Knowing is not enough. Knowing is crucial. Don't mishear me. Knowing is crucial, and we must study, and we must know, but it's only partial. Righteousness that gets you through life and into heaven, listen to me, is doing. Is doing. Knowing is the map, right? Doing's the vehicle. And is it not clear that we cannot do? Let's not fool ourselves. The most active doers amongst us and the most active knowledgeable amongst us, we are inadequate. This text has revealed that to us. Two, human knowledge is inadequate. Number two, human resolve is inadequate. Human resolve is inadequate. Christian, it's not enough. It is not enough to have a deep down resolve inside of you. I don't care how many Hollywood movies they churn out about the deep down resolve and we love it and we clap. Human resolve is not enough before a holy God. Is that not true? It's good, listen, and it's really compelling, but it can't enable you to avoid sin. Believer, you know what I mean. Remember, the night before he was betrayed, Peter always captures this so well, almost like an emblem of future disciples, is he not? Matthew 26, 35. Do you remember Peter's words? Think about this in light of all that we know of Peter. Peter said to him, this is where Jesus says, you'll deny me, right, three times. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And I love this little after text. And all the disciples said the same. You can picture their head and eyes. Yeah, I'm with Peter. Do you not feel that text? Yes, I'm with Peter. Yes, for sure. Nothing is going to separate me from Jesus. Human resolve is not enough, is it? You can be resolved all you want. You are inadequate. You can't. Care how much inspirational movies they want to make about it, you can't get to God, and you certainly can't live God. The disciples, as disciples like us still do today, need more than just resolve. Wanting to do the right thing is not the same as doing it. We are inadequate. Human knowledge is inadequate, human resolve is inadequate, and three, human diagnosis is inadequate. Christian, it's not even enough to know what the problem is. Listen, that's really good stuff in the business world today. Is Let's put our finger on the problem. That's really good stuff. Yeah, we're halfway there. We've put our finger on the problem. It sounds good. That is good. And in most human cases, the first step of the solution is knowing what the right diagnosis is or diagnosing it right. But imagine a doctor that could only ever tell you the problem. Can you imagine this? You go to the doctor and all he does is he tells you the problem. And, he, and he's precise. This is exactly your problem. Well, doctor, help me fix it. Well, I can't do that. But I can, te- I can tell you what your problem is. I'll come back to you. I can tell you what your problem is. Can you imagine that? Human diagnosis is inadequate. It helps, but it's inadequate. Similarly in our struggle, the right diagnosis with no ability to cure, listen, what does it actually do? It only amplifies, doesn't it? We are inadequate. We know the problem that remains, Christian. We know it. We know it. It's been diagnosed rightly. Now listen, not just in our own experience, but in the word of God. The diagnosis is true. We have a body of death. Flesh, 
It's dying and decaying. That's the problem. That's the struggle. And the question then is this. As our human inadequacies loom every day before us, the question is this, who will free us from this? Where is deliverance? That is the question. And the answer, beloved saint, you know this, is Jesus Christ. He's delivered your soul already, and very soon, the Spirit within you guarantees this, He will deliver and redeem your flesh. Can you find joy in that today? You sin this week. You sin this month. You feel like you're carrying around a body of sin. But it is coming to an end. Believer, I pray you get encouragement from this text. The struggle is ending. Because in Christ, listen, this is what we're going to sing in a moment. In Christ, there is no inadequacy, is there? There's perfection, completion, fulfillment, and consummation in Jesus. There's no inadequacy. In Jesus, Westmount, there is both cure and hope in struggle. And I pray you with me never forget that each and every day. In Christ, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do rejoice at the hope and struggle that we have in Jesus, your son. And God, help us day to day continue to make him our preeminent thought, our preeminent word and deed. Oh God, the struggle is real and it's fierce. But Lord, we have hope in your son. Let us cling to him now. Our everything, we pray in his name. Amen.